All right, you got your Bibles. Let's go ahead and turn to Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7. Now, we'll be um, looking at much of this chapter. Thank you for standing in the honor of reading God's Word. Uh, I want to point out just a few verses, and, and let me preface this message and this chapter by saying that um, and, and even what we dismiss fifth graders, there are so many things that we need to talk about because they're part of God's word and God's warning, God's provision and protection for us. And some of those things we can only get into in maybe our men's Bible study or our ladies' Bible study in our small groups and, and in kind of the uh, adult context because there are certainly some adult themes in the Bible. And so this morning, it may be more of a, a kind of a PG-13 approach again, but I think because middle schoolers are hearing certain things at school, they need to hear what the Bible says about it because they're at that age where they can already be making some choices that can ruin their lives. And, and I don't think there's any exaggeration there. So we'll see that within the text. But I've titled this Fatal Attraction, The Death Spiral of Seduction. And so we see this story beginning in verse 6 in chapter 7 of Proverbs. It says, At the window of my house I looked through my lattice. I saw among the inexperienced. I noticed among the youths a young man lacking sense. So there's the story about a young man who is lacking sense. If you read on down in the chapter, we see in verse 10, A woman came to meet him, dressed like a prostitute, having a hidden agenda. So we've got a young man and a young lady. Well, whose fault is it? Both of them. <laughs> Both of them. And so we're going to get into this whole idea of this, this process, this death spiral. And I don't think I'm speaking from exaggeration as we see how this story ends here, this death spiral of seduction. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would bring about an understanding of the truth, wisdom that we need to protect us, as well as conviction that we need to bring us to repentance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. In 1984, the crew of a B-52 bomber, the bomber was called the Swoon 52, they realized too late that they were below the ridge line of a mesa. It was called Hunt's Mesa there in Arizona. And they had missed the indicators and the light snow had made visibility so difficult that they had even lost their bearings to some degree. And when they tried to avoid the mesa, the wingtip, the tip of the wing clipped the mesa and was lost, which spent, uh, sent the plane spinning in a death spiral. Six of the seven crew members were able to bail with parachutes and uh, with automatic ejection seats. Of those six who bailed out of the bomber, there was one who suffered serious burns because he came down so close to the wreckage, and another who lost his life because of a severe cut that he experienced when he was ejected, so he bled the death there on the desert floor. And others experienced injuries as well. And then there was one, the pilot who was also a safety observer who went down with the aircraft. 
tragic story of what pilots will refer to as of a death spiral. A friend of the pilot would later write that he could imagine there was a moment of serenity just before impact that he knew that it was too late. Well, there's something that I believe is more tragic, yes, than even the death spiral of an airplane. That's the death spiral of sinful choices. The death spiral of seduction that destroys homes, destroys marriages, ruins lives and families. Many men and women are flying dangerously close, and often we're ignoring all the indicators that are around us that are saying, warning, you need to change your flight path. Warning, this could lead you to some serious trouble. Even some teenagers that are hearing me this morning need to recognize the warning signs because you're flirting with disaster with some of the things that you're involved in, your relationships. I used to say those relationships with the opposite sex in the world that we live in today, you even have to talk about it may be some same-sex attractions or relationships. In some way or another, you're flirting with disaster as you're flying away from God's design for your life. And if you do escape, there's going to be some bleeding and bruising and some scarring that seems to last sometimes even a lifetime. And so I want us to see these stages of this death spiral. Maybe by God's grace, and at any point by God's grace, you can be delivered from this. You can be ejected from this. You can be restored. You can recover by God's grace. And so this morning, wherever you are in this process, even if you came in this morning and you would say, well, Pastor Robbie, you don't know what I've been involved in in my life, and it is too late for me. I want to tell you, if you are breathing this morning, it's not too late for you to experience God's grace and God's healing and God's restoration. But there are some here this morning that would warn others, listen, I have fallen victim to this death spiral before. Please, Whatever you do, listen to this pastor, listen to this proverb as it warns us of what could happen. And so I want us to see these stages, if you will, this morning. The best way I could describe it as I worked my way through Proverbs chapter 7 are stages in this death spiral. And the first stage is simply the rejection of wisdom, the rejection of God's wisdom that he provides for us. When we look at verses 6 and 7, and we, we see the writer observing through his window, looking through his lattice, and he sees a young man. The Bible says in verse 7 that this young man was inexperienced. Some tri- translations say dumb. <laughs> Others say naive, and he was certainly naive. And another word for the Hebrew word here would be gullible. He was a gullible Young man, he was very vulnerable because it goes on to say, as he noticed among the youths, a young man who was lacking sense. He was void of wisdom and understanding. Literally, again, in in the Hebrew language, it means to be empty headed or empty hearted. His, His mind, you know, sometimes young ladies will ask, you know, I don't know what that fellow's thinking especially if they are involved in courtship, dating, or whatever, or they had hoped to be, they thought they were, whatever. 
And sometimes those ladies who are married here this morning, you, you think about your husband and when, back when you were dating, there were probably some times that you were wondering, I don't even know what he's thinking. And the problem is that, ladies, first of all, you're assuming that he is thinking because most of them aren't. And, and this young man, the brain was not engaged. His heart was not in it. And so he was very vulnerable. There were no boundaries or accountability in in verses 8 and 9. Crossing the street near her corner. You don't have to cross the street anymore. It can be through the internet and other websites, social media, that this process can be engaged. But he had strolled close to her house at twilight, at evening, in the dark of the night. Parents have sometimes asked kids, what could you possibly be up to this late at night. You can't get into anything any good after a certain hour at night. And really, there's a lot of truth to that. Not only that you can, you know, get into more stuff under the cover of night, but you can also be more vulnerable because when you are tired, when you're physically tired, you are emotionally and physically vulnerable and weak. And so when you go back and and you think about how he was inexperienced and he was naive and he was making some bad choices, you realize how this proverb starts in the first five verses he had rejected some wisdom. So there's this warning at the beginning of Proverbs. He says, my son, obey my words. Treasure my commands. Keep my commands and live. Protect my teachings as you would the people of your own eye. Guard this, right? He's he's saying in in verse 5, speaking of wisdom, she will keep you from the forbidden woman, a stranger with her flattering talk. And, And so he was told, take heed or listen because here are some words of wisdom that are going to protect you. And then immediately he goes into the story of a young man who's naive and ignorant and he's not heeding the wisdom that had been available in his own life. And so there are some indicators that are flashing, if you will, that, that are being neglected, like in this tragic plane crash that I mentioned. There are some indicators that had he been schooled in wisdom, he would not have ignored, but, but he just learned to ignore them. Sometimes we do that. Sometimes I, I'm guilty of uh, some indicator lights coming on my dashboard, and, and I'm probably just going, oh, well, the car's just a little old. Those indicator lights really mean nothing. I heard one of my favorite preachers say one time, listen, when you're driving in your car, those indicator lights come on telling you that the car's in need of something. Just just take you a, a little hammer, get one of those little small hammers, and just break that light. Just get rid of the indicator light, right? No, you don't want to do that because usually that's a warning that something's wrong. Well, this, this young man had ignored all the indicators. He was naive. He was not aware of what was going on around. And we need to understand that, that the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5, the flesh wars against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, that the two are contrary. And then it says, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And Ephesians chapter 5, where it talks about don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit of God. It's a chapter that also tells us to walk in the light and to walk in wisdom, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And so the Spirit-filled life is a life that avails ourselves to not only the Spirit of God, but the Word of God, the truth of God. And so that we're guided by the indicators of God in our life to say, son, daughter, back away. This is not of God. This is going to get you in trouble. And sometimes God gives you a spirit-filled parent to warn you young people that 
listen, don't go. I'm telling you, don't go that direction. And when you get older, you've got to realize how smart your parents were. And sometimes God gives you a spirit-filled spouse. And so, men, your wife tells you, be careful in this place around this person. She knows what she's talking about. Or she tell, or, or, or the, the husband gives the wife some advice. And so God gives you some spirit-filled warning there and some truth that we are not to neglect. Sometimes we neglect that wisdom and we reject that wisdom. And by the way, make no mistake, to neglect it is to reject it. When we neglect God's wisdom, we're rejecting God's wisdom. And so when we fail to have that daily quiet time and be empowered through prayer and Bible study and daily worship, or when we miss out on corporate worship where we draw strength from the people of God getting into the presence of God, when we neglect those areas where God can pour his wisdom into our life, we become more vulnerable and we don't notice the indicators. When we don't realize that our children have the indicator lights all around them and the warning lights are there and we're not warning them, we, we try to prepare them for everything else. We, protect, we prepare them academically because we want them to maybe earn some kind of scholarship or be able to have more opportunities and options when it comes to a career decision. Or we, we prepare them uh, athletically because we, maybe they can earn a scholarship there or maybe they can be and uh, excel and do the very best in that area of life. Or artistically, we want them to be able to use their artistic gifts for those who are gifted artistically to maybe play an instrument or, or in another area of the arts be successful. Are we pouring wisdom into them to protect them morally because they can make moral decisions that rob them of all of those other opportunities? And so we need to not reject the wisdom of God. And so we're to be in the Word of God and in prayer and learning how to live the Spirit-filled life because we are most vulnerable to the rest of this death spiral when we get away from the Lord Jesus Christ. When we're walking close to Him, we see the warning signs and we have less desire for those things that are offered to us by the world. Well, I want us to move to the next stage, the rebellion of the heart. Not only the rejection of wisdom, but the rebellion of the heart. Isaiah said, the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? It is is able to fool us. And I don't like it when uh, you go to these graduation ceremonies and somebody gets up to speak and they say, just follow your heart and everything will be okay. No, your heart will get you into trouble in a hurry. We need to follow God's word because our hearts can be full of rebellion at times. Look at this rebellion of the heart, starting in verse 10. It says, a woman came to meet him, and she was dressed like a prostitute having a hidden agenda. Well, if she was dressed like a prostitute, you have to think, was the agenda really that hidden? But she knew that she wanted to get involved in something that would not please God, that her husband was out of town, and that could also destroy the life of another individual. I think of Elvis Presley and his profound words. Remember, talking about the woman who could walk like an angel, talk like an angel. He said, oh, but what? I got wise because you're the devil in disguise. And so if we could teach our young people to recognize that, listen, adults, if we could recognize how the devil has disguised himself to deceive us, it may be a young man, a young lady, an older man, an older lady who's facing this. In verse 11, it says, She's loud and defiant, and her feet do not stay at home. If you don't 
value the home, you can destroy the home, the home, your home or other homes. So whether it's somebody married like this woman was or somebody who is still single, if there's no love, no passion for the home, even in dating, I tell young people, watch how that young man respects his parents. Young ladies, watch how that young man treats his mother. Young men, watch how that young lady that you're interested in treats and respects her father. If there's not a love for the home, if there's a desire to stay away. Now listen, I know sometimes that can be because there's an abusive setting in the home that needs to be dealt with, but if if there's some dysfunction in the home, then they're not ready for a relationship at that point with you. Then you read in verse 12. It says, now in the street, now in the squares, she lurks at every corner. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober, be vigilant, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And like Elvis said, right, it could be somebody who's the devil in disguise. Listen, I know that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And so let's just don't uh, start calling everybody the devil, right? But at the same time, realize the devil would like to use people to influence you and to pull you away from your walk with Jesus Christ, to ruin your life, to ruin your home. In verse 13, it says she grabs him and she kisses him. Well, she is quick to kiss, is she not? And she brazenly says to him, she's this brazen language, this bold language, she's quick to be physical, she takes hold of him. She's beginning to talk, and, and, and we'll see some of the words that she uses here. At the point that she took hold of him like this, he should have remembered the story maybe of Joseph. Remember Joseph when he was sold into slavery and finds himself working for Potiphar in Egypt, and Potiphar's wife comes into the house, and, and she takes hold of him. The Bible says he left his garment in her hands, his outer garment, his cloak. He left that in her hands. He fled and he ran. He applied uh, uh, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lust. I mean, he got as far from the situation as he possibly could. And there are times in our life where we need to resist the devil so that the devil will flee from us and we stand our ground and say, not today. And there are other times that the Bible says, not stand your ground, but run, flee. And when it comes to sexual and sensual temptation, We're told to flee, but she is lurking, she's there, she is brazen, she approaches him. And then in verse 14, surprise of all surprises, she is a church girl. I've made fellowship offerings. Today I've fulfilled my vows. I've gone to church. And so I'm kind of right with God. This is mentality of, hey, listen, it's okay if we get involved in sin, just so we, like, you know, go to confession and give it to God, right? And, and so it's those who would use grace as a license to sin. Yeah, just, just sin all you want to and, and, and forget Paul's words in Romans chapter 6. that says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we that have died to sin live in any longer? Forget Paul's words to the church at Corinth that says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received of 
God. Listen, if the Holy Spirit has sealed you until the day of redemption, you can't just place him on a shelf and go get involved in what you want to get involved in and then come back and say, okay, God, I'm back. We can't approach it that way. She was like one, listen, even outwardly religious, like one of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 8. Jesus would say of the Pharisees, quoting Isaiah when when Israel had their problems with their own adultery, he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so you can even be religious You can be a churchgoer and just caught up in this death spiral of seduction, either as the one who is vulnerable and naive or the one who is the seducer in the process. And remember, both are at fault. And sometimes the male and the female can switch places in this story here. And so our goal should be to recognize we could have a tendency to have a rebellious heart and not see how close to disaster we can kind of flirt with it. Listen, a question that I used to receive all the time when I was in student ministry went something like this. Pastor Robbie, when we're dating, how far is too far? How far can you go on a date? Usually they were talking about physical behavior. How far is too far? Like holding hands, kissing, whatever. What is too far? And I would usually respond by something like this. You're asking the wrong question. A Christian shouldn't say, where can I draw the line so I know how close to get to it? I remember hearing the story about a man who had a packaging business at the top of a mountain, a strange place to have a packaging business, I guess, but back, you know, 150 years ago, and he was trying to to hire a wagon driver to take something that he had prepared that was in, you know, glass containers, some syrup or something from the mountains there, and and so he had these glass containers, and he wanted a wagon driver who would deliver these into the towns around the mountain. And so he he brought in three different men who were going to try out for the job. And the first one said, man, I am very precise. I know exactly what I'm doing. He said, I can keep that wagon 12 inches from that cliff on the edge of the mountain. He said, I can keep it 12 inches from the cliff all the way down and never go over the edge. And so he demonstrated that. And the next one wanted to say, no, 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 I'm a better driver than him. Watch me. I will get within three or four inches of that cliff and never go over the edge. Watch what, what a good driver I am. And the third said, man, I'm not a driver like these two, man. I'm, I'm not that good. I'm not that precise. And so when he did the test drive, he hugged the mountain and stayed as far from the edge as he possibly could. And he is the one who got the job because the One who was doing the hiring said, listen, I don't want somebody who takes any chances to see how close to the edge they can get. And and so many times we're asking the question, how far is too far? Where can I draw the lines? When God is saying, the line is over here, Jesus is over there, get as close to Jesus as you can and as far away from the line as you possibly can. That's what holiness asks. That's what consecration and a love for God will ask, not what a rebellious heart will ask. And so we should desire to draw close to him, not see how far away from him we can get. Third, I want you to see this third stage, the redefinition of love. Love starts being redefined by this woman. Look at verses 16 through 18 in this passage. It says, I've spread coverings on my bed, richly colored linen from Egypt. I've perfumed my my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of lovemaking 
until morning. Let's feast on each other's love. By the way, this is redefining love. This is not love. This is lust. This is anything but love. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. And so to use words like lovemaking that we still use even to this day where you can listen to a country song or a southern rock song that says, I don't, or I do feel like making love, and you ask the question, you're not making love. You express love. God is love. You can get together with somebody and you can make cookies, but you don't make God God is love. You are filled with God and you express the love of God in the context that he says love can be expressed, which is marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. That is true love. Here in his love, the passage goes on to say in 1 John 4, 8, here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself. Love dies to self, not says, how much can I satisfy myself? Love dies to self and comes alive for God's purposes, and experiences real love, the kind of love we looked at last week. Listen, that's why we kind of got into that last week with um, the importance of celebrating this kind of love, this kind of intimacy within the context of marriage. It's a wonderful and awesome thing to celebrate, and that's why we want to work so hard to prepare our children to save themselves and present that even on their wedding day to experience God's best and not to settle for anything less than that because what God has to offer is not this counterfeit that the devil's trying to offer that ruins lives and destroys homes and families. And so we want to present our children even on their wedding days with this kind of purity, this kind of hope, this kind of love. Those, when we, we've experienced what God has, God's best, we don't want what the world has to offer. You know, on, um, on Tuesdays, we have staff meetings around here, and staff meetings often spill over into lunch. We, we have a lot to cover, and uh, especially if we get started late morning, Tuesday morning staff meeting, we're going to be looking for a place to grab some lunch somewhere around 1.30 or 2. I can see it in, in uh, Pastor Ben and Pastor Jeff's eyes. It's time to go grab some lunch somewhere or something like that. And, and sometimes they give me a hard time because I could say, you know, for instance, when I used to live in Comer, if we headed over in the Comer area, I could say, hey, there's a gas station in Comer that has great roller dogs, right? And, and if I'm hungry and I know it's ready, it's already on there, and I'm guilty, church, I, I'm so, I, I will stop sometimes for lunch and buy the cheap roller dogs, and I'm telling them, God, but look, guys, come on, you can get a hot dog, you can get a Little Debbie and a bag of chips and a Coke, a, a four-course meal, right, for two ninety nine. They're like, Pastor Robbie, please. <laughs> and so they make fun of me because I'm guilty if I'm traveling or whatever. Stop and grab a roller dog, keep going. Last night I did eat the varsity. Theirs cost a little bit more. But, um, and, and so, you know, usually if we go to Comer, we go on pass. Actually, one of my favorite places to eat in Comer, and they didn't pay me to advertise, but it's Maggie's. And they do have Wi-Fi, and we can sit around the table and we get some things done. It may be time for another trip to to Maggie's. But we can sit around the table, we can pull out the laptops, and we can get stuff done and have a delicious meal. But you know, I've never left Maggie's after having a good meal, a good lunch, and thought, huh, I think I want to stop by the gas station and get a roller dog and a little Debbie and a Coke. 
I never say that after we leave, after having a good meal. And so listen, church, what I'm saying and, and what I'm trying to illustrate with this is if you get so filled up with God and you guard your marriage and you make it all that it's supposed to be, all of a sudden you've experienced real love and you don't want some fake counterfeit redefinition of love. You don't want what the devil has to offer because you are satisfied. This whole series, The Satisfied Life, is to encourage you to be so satisfied in your relationship with Jesus Christ that you won't settle for what the devil offers you when he throws his crumbs at you because you've had the real thing, what God had to offer. That's why you must nurture your love for God. And for those of you who are married, not only nurture your love for God, but nurture your love for for God together so that you grow more and more in love. Listen, here's the wonderful thing. You might say, man, when you get married, you've been married a year, you kind of miss that falling in love. No, you don't. You fall more in love and deeper in love throughout your life. I mean, listen, on our wedding day, I was in love with Tina, but I am more in love with her today than I ever have been because you get to fall in love again and again and deeper and deeper. And it's an awesome thing, and you don't want the devil's substitutes when you nurture that love. If you neglect that love and you neglect that wisdom and you neglect your relationship with Jesus Christ, then you become vulnerable. You might say, but I'm here and I'm single this morning still. You want to learn to be satisfied in Jesus because if you're not satisfied in him, there's nothing that anybody else could ever offer you that would satisfy. And even a godly marriage is not what it's supposed to be if you don't make Jesus your first and foremost source in your life. It's not fair to give your spouse a Messiah complex to be for you what only Jesus can be. So there's the redefinition of love. God is love. Love is self-denying, self-sacrificing. And the fourth stage, the rationalization of sin. This is when you start making excuses. You start rationalizing. You start saying, listen, it's okay. And so verse 19, she says, my husband isn't home. He went on a long journey. See, here's the first lie. No one will have to know. No one will ever get hurt. The Bible says, be sure your sins will find you out. Not only that, we're to live life of integrity as believers that we know that God knows everything. When Michelangelo was painting the Sistine Chapel ceiling, he was given great detail to small areas, and someone spoke to him and said, listen, you don't have to spend so much time giving detail to that particular area. No one will ever know that any mistake or anything is left out. And Michelangelo responded by saying, oh, yes, they will. He said, I will know. I will know. Integrity says, even if I know, that's enough because I want to please God with my life. And so that first rationalization, no one will ever know, moves into another rationalization. It kind of says, I deserve this. Listen, she says, he took a bag of money with him. He will come home at the time of the full moon. I know when he's coming back. Nobody's ever going to know. She seduces him with her persistent pleading. She lures him with her flattering talk. Nobody will know. We deserve this flattery. Sometimes that flattery sounds like the devil in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? It, it, you know, it's, it's another country song, right? If loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. Is it really a big deal? And that's what the world is saying today, right? They're saying, is this really a big deal? 
Listen, when a, when a prominent pastor who I love and appreciate can stand and, and say that the Bible whispers about sexual sin, I have to say, wait a minute, you're not reading the same Bible I am. The Bible shouts warnings because your marriage is to picture that covenant relationship that we saw last week between Christ and his church, and the Bible shouts warnings to guard yourself in this area. The Bible shouts about sexual sin because it destroys homes, because it destroys hearts, and because it destroys lives. The Bible shouts about sexual sin because it sends a distorted and perverted picture of love, the covenant love that we saw between Christ and his church. The Bible shouts about sexual perversion because it serves as a sign of ultimate depravity, man's worship of the creation, Romans 1 says, above the creator, which became the ultimate expression of idolatry. We see why God shouts about sexual sin, though, when we move to this final stage and this fifth stage, the revelation of death as the ultimate conclusion to this spiral. Verses 22 and 23 says, He follows her impulsively like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer bounding toward a trap until an arrow pierces its liver like a bird darting into a snare. He doesn't know it will cost him his life. It will cost him his life. Say physical death? Was she really going to kill him? It's not always physical death. Remember, Adam and Eve were told on the day that they eat of the knowledge of the tree of uh, the fruit of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they would surely die. They didn't die physically that day, but they died spiritually. Sometimes it's a spiritual death. Sometimes it is a physical death. It's a shortened life by stress that comes with sin, by disease, by homicide, sometimes suicide, sometimes a resulting abortion, but the end is death. Sometimes it could be the death of a marriage, it could be the death of other relationships, it could be the death of trust the death of joy, the death of intimacy, the death of romance in your own marriage or your future marriage. It can certainly be spiritual death in that it's destroying. There are some this morning saying, but I'm single, and so it's not as big a deal because it's not really adultery, right? No, the Bible calls it fornication, and it's hurting your relationship with God. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man. It seems okay But in the end, it leads to death. Death. And we try to dress it up. We try to pray through it. We try to act spiritual. We try to say it's no big deal. We hear the culture saying it's okay. It's no big deal. Watch what you want to watch. Go where you want to go. Spend time with who you want to be with. Remember the words of a country song by David Allen Coe. If he's somebody's favorite, I apologize. Not really. Um, Singing a prayer that he hoped makes it past the hotel ceiling. Words of the prayer went something like this. Now I lay me down to cheat on the woman I love so. And if I die between these sheets, I pray to God she'll never know. 
gotten used, there's one prayer that a sinner can pray that God's going to hear. That's a prayer of repentance, prayer of brokenness, prayer of desperation. God, forgive me, cleanse me, get me back on track. Don't listen to the flattery and the lies of the enemy, and don't let him rob what God wants. And listen, I'm so grateful God is able to deliver and heal and restore. Like I said earlier, so many here this morning that would say, for those of you who might be flirting with disaster, listen, don't don't go there. Don't risk that. Don't settle for less than God's best. Don't settle for crumbs at the devil's table when you can have a feast at God's table. Would you bow your heads with me?